Welcome to the very first episode of Film Bros Anonymous. My name is Cody and I'm a film bro. And my name is Peter and I am also a film bro. It has been two years, six months, and three days since my last viewing of Fight Club. Is that a real statistic or just off the top of your head? Oh, I just made it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I, <laughs> it's probably been longer, actually. I think I... I haven't seen Fight Club since I was back in high school, which I guess says something. Maybe I'm a film row in recovery. Yeah, it's been you know, it's been a journey, but we're here helping others. It's, uh, one of the one of the twelve steps. I know the twelve steps, but yeah. So we are going to be coming every month. We want to explain the the format of the show real quick. But the goal is to take every month. We're kind of focusing on one movie from the film bro canon. And then we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of looking at some other options that are similar. So we'll do kind of like an art house or a classic play on the same theme. We'll do a B movie that, you know, was maybe super low budget and you haven't seen. And then we're also going to try to get in a something that expands your horizons, something from a minority filmmaker or a foreign language movie. So yeah, that's what we're thinking for the format. Yep, we're pretty much going to explore the the Reddit top 100 movies as one was as one is and then kind of go through them, say, you know, what's good about the movie because obviously these are fantastic movies in their own right. But in addition to that, we're going to kind of talk about where a lot of the influences come from or where they might come from. What is the movie actually trying to say besides being a cool ass movie? And then yeah, like Cody said, we're going to explore I like this movie. What are some other options? What are some other things having to do with it? Yeah. So the the goal is to branch out from our normal favorites. From the the established canon yes. of film bro history. Yeah. You know, you hear a lot about all of these genres of movies and like movements in film. And I think that the film bro has been around long enough that it's fair to say there's a pretty established canon of what the film bro is into. And we want to help film bros branch out, given that we are film bros ourselves and we, you know, have an affinity for that kind of movie. You know, your Pulp Fictions, your Fight Clubs, all of that sort of thing. And and we like a bunch of other weird stuff. Speaking of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, speaking of Pulp Fiction, that is what we watched for the inaugural episode of Film Bros Anonymous. Man, so most of the movie podcasts I listen to usually do like a recap of the movie at the top. But that feels kind of hard to do for this movie. Yeah, Pulp Fiction is just a such a collection of things. It's a collection of just this great dialogue, these fantastic set pieces. And at this point, it's just so ingrained in the mind and like the mythos of cinema that everybody knows the quotes from it. Everybody knows the images from it. Talking what happened at length seems like a waste of time almost. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the assemblage of the movie. Okay. Because it, you know, it comes together really well, but it is all of these weird sequences. Three different stories are happening, all being told out of order. And a thing that I think is really interesting is that the reason that there's so many different stories happening in Pulp Fiction is that Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino decided to make a screenplay from like their best pages from everything they'd ever written. Well, that's fantastic. I didn't know that part. And then they just like stitched it all together and it came together into, you know, a nearly perfect movie. That's fantastic because watching it, it feels so much like it was 
built with these different stories in mind, and they feel so integral to the overall picture. The very name of the movie, Pulp Fiction, harkens back to these sort of, you know, dime store trash novels from the era of the 1900s to the 1950s called Pulp because they were pretty much written on the cheapest possible paper because it was just stick them out there. These stories that meant nothing and had no like intrinsic value. And of course, now watching Pulp Fiction, you know, we have all these different stories and there's moments where it's like, do these have any value or are they just, is it just violence? But they're all interwoven together in such an interesting way that it's it's almost surprising to hear that their original sources were, were you know, different stories that they wanted to tell and not just like, let's take this one story and break it apart. Let's talk about the three major stories that we're looking at here. So we've got Jules and Vincent going on an adventure to reclaim a briefcase. We've got Butch and the watch. And then we have Vincent and Mia going on, not a date. But like you said, the way they're told is very separate. We open up in the story of Jules and Vincent dealing with this briefcase. We don't know it's part of that story yet, but that's how we open it up. And that's, again, the last, that's the first story we experience before the cre- opening credits. Immediately after the opening credits, we see the beginning of that story. And then we see the finale of that story as the closing of the movie. I remember being... 19 in my dorm room with a pilfered projector that belonged to the residence hall just sitting on my couch with my mouth hanging open at the end when it like oh man the thing from the beginning came back at the end and it all tied up together and like I had forgotten about the diner from the beginning of the movie because I am like the most slack-jawed movie viewer ever I will absolutely forget a setup until right when the payoff happens and just being like wow, this is cinema. It's such an interesting experience, and it's something that anytime it's played with, it has to be done well. Because if it's done poorly, it just feels stupid, and you're like, well, why do they tell it in this order? Now it cheapens the effects of the story, but with this one, I think it definitely enhanced it. Just the way we we see the characters from our opening pop up in different stories, and we see... The expansion of characters in their own story, Bruce Willis's character, when we initially see him, there's no real indication that he's going to be such a pivotal character. But I really love the way that the dynamics of the characters change based on which story we're in. The, their purpose and their role within the overall structure changes. Do you want to go through the stories real quick, or do we kind of assume our listeners already know them? I think that we can give a brief recap because I think there's probably a person who's clicking on this who last watched Pulp Fiction a few years ago and and it may not be as fresh for them as it is for us. Like okay. Fresh off of walking from your apartment uh, to mine. Yes, to we open on Vincent and Jules going into an apartment, stealing a hamburger, right. and then blowing away some college-age kids who have stolen a briefcase from Marcellus Wallace. And this is where we also get the fantastic Bible verse, which sticks with us through most of the movie and has a lot of importance to the overall structure. I have to, I have to ask you a question. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this that will work um, without giving away anything. Do you think that this is a real Bible verse? 
I don't think that that's a way to not give it away, but yeah, I think it is. Oh no. Oh, it's not. No, it's entirely. Oh my God. That's (laughs) hilarious. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Nice. Wow, I, I well, so I didn't realize it was completely fictitious. Yeah, it's got like just the right cadence to sound like, you know, some King James zaniness. Okay. So yeah, it it seems like it's a passage of the Bible, but Quentin Tarantino rewrote it for pulp fiction. Only Quentin Tarantino would be like, "Whoa, I got to I got to juice the Bible real quick." Yeah, the original verse out of the Bible, "And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them." So we get the general gist, but the whole section about the path of the righteous man beset on all sides by the iniquities of the selfish, the tyranny of evil men, the blessed in the charity, that whole, so that whole thing is completely made up. That's really interesting because that even, that makes it even more important for the context of the overall story that Tarantino specifically wrote that for the movie. Yeah, when it comes at the end and I think it undercuts in a very Tarantino way, Jules's whole journey through the movie. Well, I think it, I think it goes into everything we see in the movie. I think that's like it, that verse is key to understanding everything because our roles change throughout the movie, who the, the shepherd is, what the tyranny is, who the weak is that based on where we are in, and which story we are, those roles seem to switch around, you know, in Butch's story, you know, Vincent's, Vincent's the representative of the tyranny. You know, he's representative of the thing that's trying to, to stop Butch from escaping, you know, and, but in, in Vincent's story with Mia, he's the shepherd trying to guide her through all of this, all of these iniquities. Dude, yeah, you're cooking. It's really interesting because that final speech by Jules, I think, really puts the whole thing into perspective a little bit. Yeah, you have the our first mention of the gimp sequence, but like yeah. the tyranny of evil men and putting Marcellus, who is sort of the tyranny of evil men in everyone else's story. Yeah, uh, he gets subjugated. Yeah, and he suddenly becomes a victim, and Butch has to be the shepherd to lead him out of there. That's like an instant reversal. Yeah, yeah, Butch. it happens within the story. We have a theme of vengeance and furious anger throughout in various parts of the story. But yeah, we kind of got lost from our describing the stories. So we have the, I mean, even in the gold watch, because you have. This, you know, you have Christopher Walken's character and Butch's dad were in, they went from being guys flying over Vietnam, like being the tyranny to being tyrannized in a prison camp to now coming and visiting this insane story on a five-year-old. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that watch ended up in quite a few places. Yeah. Seven years. I'll tell you later, but my dad had to go through a lot of stuff to get that watch back. <laughs> I don't have time to get into it right now. I don't have time to get into it right now. <laughs> it's really not a long story. No, it's not. No, my, my dad stuck it somewhere. And then Christopher Walken also stuck it. Somewhere. Oh, what a great, what a great performance by him. He just wanders in. This actually, this brings me to a thing that I had in my notes that I wanted to talk about. There is this theme with the way the movie is shot of constantly looking up at characters. And I think that it probably ties into, if I did another watch with what you've just said about the Bible passage in mind, I think that it would tie into what I was noticing about how things were shot, where like when Jules and Vincent are getting ready to go into the apartment. The camera is always below their eyeline so that we're looking up at them as they're getting ready to go in. And then in the scene with Butch and Christopher, the child Butch and Christopher Walken, it's all shot from below Christopher Walken so that you're looking up from like Butch's perspective. And I thought that that was a really interesting, the way that that scene is shot, it's a, like super wide lens so that the room and Christopher Walken feel like really big and imposing from this little kid's perspective. But I think that if you watch that angle through the movie, you're going to pick up on more of what Peter's laying down for us. Mm. It's such great camera work overall. Of course we have the, the Tarantino dialogue, which is just so amazing and you know just this inane dialogue that we get from almost the outset of the movie that just carries through where it feels like they're talking about nothing at all but you're just drawn into it yeah and that that kind of goes back to the whole idea of pulp fiction and what pulp fiction is is that it means nothing is there's no real importance to the fact that a hamburger in France is called a Royale. A quarter pounder is called a Royale with cheese. There's no real significance to that, but you are invested in it. Yeah. I like it's all giving you a little bit deeper look into the the character who's, you know, giving us this, you know, kind of rambly dialogue. And I think that that's where Tarantino is differing a little bit from like the tradition of Pulp Fiction, mm. where the characters are expendable in in a pulp novel, like yeah. they they exist to carry the action forward. Um, but Tarantino can't resist giving his characters like really unique flair and a little bit of a look inside. Yeah, well, they all got they all got that Tarantino cool. They all got that. You know, I mean, everybody in the '90s wanted to be a a Tarantino character. Right up until the buckets of blood come out. <laughs> yeah, right until that. I mean, you got Vincent, who during the story with Mia is just the coolest guy, and you know he's he's doing drugs, he's keeping it together, he's dealing with all this bullshit, and you're rooting for him. Whoa, whoa, whoa Peter, we can't say drugs are cool. Oh God, on the internet. Oh God, cut it, cut it. <laughs> but then you know when you get to the next story. The only amount of Vincent we see is him getting off the toilet and getting obliterated. Yeah. And even in the, you know, in the Bonnie situation, 
at at yeah uh, he Jimmy's seems house. like an asshole yeah he's an asshole he seems like you get to really feel what he feels like when he feels inferior because a lot of the other situations we see him in in the movie he feels like he's on top of things mm. he knows what's happening and when mr wolf shows up suddenly he's not top dog anymore and he all the confidence is gone yeah it makes me wonder like if there was a a mr wolf segment would we see him in a different light as well because he's presented in such a cool suave way that we all you know we almost get out of vincent early on and it's like do each of these characters have their own sort of thing going on yeah it would be interesting to just see the like the fractal of (laughs) pulp fiction that just keeps getting longer yeah yeah we just keep expanding to different characters and I mean, that's what it feels like almost. We just, you know, we get these snippets of characters and they get expanded out. And, you know, we have our opening Bonnie and Clyde type characters. Not literal Bonnie since there's a Bonnie character <laughs> later on. but Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Yeah, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And oh, Tim Roth is so good in this movie. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Amanda Plummer is fantastic. She does that crazed, that crazed woman real well. <laughs> I love you, Pumpkin. I love you, Honey Bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! God, yeah. It's it's just a movie that pulls you along with it. And you're not always entirely certain where it's going and what the point of it is, but it pulls you along. I mean, just so many great set pieces that draw you in and you're completely convinced of this world that tarantino has built vincent going and just buying his drugs and the interaction with his drug dealer yeah i i think a fun thing to note here is that during the casting process tarantino intended to be the drug dealer so he would have done that role pretty well too i think it seems like very similar to his character we see later on yeah the when he's looking for the little black medical book and he's just screaming that he he needs it and to shut the fuck up. The manic energy of going into a drug dealer's house with someone who's ODing and and I don't remember the actor's name in that scene, but he really carries it. Eric Stoltz? Lance? Lance was the carrier? Yeah, Lance is the drug dealer. Yeah. I should have this pulled up on Letterboxd so that I can sound smart. We could talk forever about how much of a landmark this is just in cinema and cinematic history. You know, I mean, what Tarantino really started with, like Reservoir Dogs, I think Pulp Fiction kind of was the, maybe the pinnacle of that. Although not my favorite Tarantino movie. My favorite Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown. Peter being such an anti-film bro here, picking Jackie Brown as his favorite. Jackie Brown is so good. I'm going to embrace the my inner film bro and admit that my favorite Tarantino is Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards, I like. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I the opening scene is my favorite in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, it's. I'm interested to rewatch Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards now that I have like quite a bit more experience watching like smarter movies <laughs> to see like because Tarantino's such a referential filmmaker yeah and by referential i mean like almost plagiarism <laughs> that i i'm interested to go back and be like okay what's being stolen from in inglorious bastards i'm sure that 
we're covering that movie at some point. Yeah. Well, part of what we we want to talk about in this, this series or the influence and Tarantino is notorious for pulling, you know, a lot of his stuff is influenced from foreign film that people in America just weren't able to see or weren't watching at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that he was stealing it. It's that he was recontextualizing it for an American audience and, you know, bringing his own sort of dramatic flair and style to it. Peter, I didn't know that you were a PR person for Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Listen, the foot thing is just a just a misnomer. Yeah, how could you accuse the man of uh, what was our, anything what like was that? What was our Tarantino feet counter at by the end of this movie? It, five. A oh, five, okay. That's and that is good. not counting individual feet. Okay, that is just occurrences just, of bare feet bare in this feet, movie yeah. for no reason. <laughs> Speaking of that, we can go to one of our, I believe this was foot counter number three. The Jackrabbit Slim sequence. Oh, what a what a fantastic sequence. If there's anything in this movie that is just the most iconic. In a movie full of icons, I think everything at Jackrabbit Slim is just top. The dance scene, the Fox Force 5. The, the dance scene is an interesting moment of, as you said, recontextualizing a foreign film's sequence Ooh, okay. for an American audience. Are we talking like Bend Apart here or... Eight and a half. Oh, eight and a half. Okay. Federico Fellini. It is, dude, when you watch the side by side, it is shot for shot. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I've seen eight and a half, but I didn't, I didn't think to compare them. I was thinking there's a really good dance sequence in Band of Outsiders by Goddard. Goddard. And Tarantino did name his production company a band apart. That's true. That is true. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I saw references to both dance scenes in ah. in my research before we got started because full disclosure i have not seen it in half oh it's a good movie i'm sure that it will make sense tied to a film bro movie at some point yeah so i'll get to see it or it could come up on our watch list shuffle that we'll get to at the end of the episode in the jackrabbit slim sequence did you notice who buddy holly was no who it's steve buscemi Oh, was it really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty young. I didn't know, yeah, I didn't notice him. What do uh, you... Uh, my goodness, that... Uh, those big old glasses. Yeah, yeah, he looks a little out of... Uh, he didn't quite look as Steve Buscemi as he normally does. Normally, he's very instantly recognizable. Yeah, it's those eyes. So yeah. throwing the glasses on him hit him. Yeah, that'll... Yeah. yeah, but the Jackrabbit Slim scene is is just so good that that 50s nostalgia, to, or that like 50s and the 60s nostalgia that we get there, which you know, kind of pulls in from the, the Pulp Fiction era. The posters on the wall are fun to look at. And, you know, all the movie posters, you got like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and all those. Just a lot of real fun stuff in that scene. All the various characters. I thought that it was interesting to... You're bringing in this 50s nostalgia, but the way that you're doing it is like having wait staff dressed up as all of these icons of the fifties. Yeah. Tarantino is doing a little bit of a commentary on like what the movie is where it's like, you know, a crass commercial thing. It's the equivalent yes. of going to a sock hop diner. Yes. Well, I mean, when you think about like the eighties was such a period of fifties nostalgia and fifties revivalism and, you know, Reagan's time period. And so, the n- movies of the 90s are very much a reaction against that, and that this is part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And it's fun when you, because a lot of filmmakers who were big at this time also pull on a lot of 50s nostalgia. David Lynch is another one who does a lot of 50s nostalgia in his stuff, but it, it usually ends up having a much darker tone mm-hmm. sort of underlying it. And this one definitely felt a little, a, a little like a satire of our reverence for that era. You know, you got the, you have a shot of the, the famous Marilyn Monroe upskirt, essentially. When her skirt goes up, yeah, yeah. <laughs> over the sewer grate. It is very fun to imagine a restaurant having a like timed sequence that is yeah. recreating that. I did notice because I'd been watching the way that Vincent John Travolta's character was framed, and up to the Jackrabbit Slim sequence, we're seeing him from below. And then when we have the Vincent Vega and Marcelo Marcellus Wallace's wife title card, then we're not seeing him from below. For that story just like we had already talked about mm-hmm. during the the back and forth in the car booth at jack Rabbit jack rabbit slims we're getting these like very close shots of vincent and mia back and forth um and i really really enjoyed the editing in that scene like it was lightning quick but then it would as the conversation went on it started lingering on uma thurman and I did notice that they were actually drinking the milkshake, which was fun. Nice. The, the cherry was descending that into the glass. That $5 milkshake. That $5 milkshake. You know, this brings us to an important point of contention. You asked our friend Seth, who was watching the movie with us. Shout out to Seth, our only listener. We're doing this for you, bud. You, you asked why Alamo Drafthouse didn't have a $5 milkshake. I did. I did. Yeah. I would counter with AMC. Does not have a $5 milkshake. You know, but, but what they don't have as well as a, a $12 milkshake, they just don't have a milkshake. There you go. I mean, I guess a no milkshake is better than a $12 milkshake. They have ices. Yeah. I love you know, what, you know where else has ices? 7-Eleven. But I wouldn't, I, wouldn't watch, I wouldn't watch a movie at 7-Eleven, so. Wow, you got to have more commitment to the cinema than that. <laughs> Look, that's where they all got their start in Seven Eleven theaters. That's the that's the next product integration for movies is that you have to go to a Seven Eleven to to watch the latest episode of your favorite show. Oh God, don't give them ideas, please. You have to buy another Slurpee to continue. Speaking on just the amazing camera work in this movie, I want to talk about how Marcellus Wallace. How every time we see him. It's that shot from behind, the iconic look. He has like the Band-Aid on the back of his neck. And then the first time we get to see his face, it's just such a moment of utter confusion for everybody involved, which is when he's walking past the car and he stops and goes, what the fuck? Yes. Yeah. And that's our first, like, that's our reveal shot of this, this guy who has been this shadowy mobster the entire time, which I think almost goes back to what I was saying earlier about just the the roles the characters take in the story. He's suddenly in the rest of the story, not this shadowy overarching tyranny force. He's just another character in the story another victim. Yeah. I do think that there is an interesting moment of, you know, Marcellus is going out to grab donuts in the morning. It looks like a donut box to me that he's carrying and Butch pulls up and you have that moment of you're looking up, from the windshield of the car at Marcellus as he transitions from 
just a guy who's walking with some donuts to seeing Butch and assuming his role. And then, because in that short sequence before they get to the pawn shop and Butch gets the upper hand, Marcellus is definitely in the, the powerful position there. That's actually a fantastic thing you just said and a very good point because I just remembered at the almost like one of the, at the very beginning of the movie, right before Jules and Vincent go into the the room, you know, they, they break down the door and have their whole burger scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jules says to Vincent, come on, we got to get into our roles. Yeah. So I think that's that's a theme that seems to come up repeatedly is the idea of the roles people are taking and how that switches around. To to have a real film bro moment here. So there is this play by Eugene O'Neill called The Great God Brown that I read for a class a long time ago. So I might get some of the details wrong. But the big thrust of it is this guy who is jealous of another person and how like much better they are at life than him. And every character in the play is wearing a mask. And he steals the mask from this guy that he's jealous of to like make himself the life of the party. It's like a, you know, Dionysus mask. And at the end of the movie, he like finally wants to take or the end of the play he wants to take it off and can't and that's kind of the you know vincent at the beginning of the movie puts on the the role of this Mm -hmm. confident guy and there's moments of it slipping throughout when he's panicked about mia's overdose you know he has these moments of showing who he really is of course his final end and then in his final end he I don't think that that's, I think that that's his refusal to take the mask off Mm. because what kind of person waiting for someone who beat a man to death goes and takes a shit and leaves his gun on the counter? Well, every time Vincent goes to the bathroom in this movie, bad stuff happens. You're not wrong. You're Uh, not wrong. We have the overdose, we have the robbery, and we have Butch getting the drop on him. Yeah. But then he, you know, at the end of his story, he's refused to to stop playing the role Mm -hmm. and he... You know, he lives by the machine pistol and he dies by the machine pistol. Yeah. Whereas Jules, he puts on the mask to do the role and then he encounters the, you know, the thing he spends the rest of the movie saying was a miracle. Yeah. And he decides that he's done and he's taken the mask off and he's not going to put it back on. Well, he even says that his, his reading of Ezekiel was just because it was something badass to say to people before he capped him. Yeah. And then he says, you know, I never actually thought about it before. And that feels a lot like the movie itself. You watch it, and it's like, yeah, it's badass. You got Samuel Jackson saying motherfucker a lot. You got all this violence, but it's even like... Even on his wallet. Yeah, even on his wallet it says it, which apparently I looked it up. It was Quentin Tarantino's wallet. So Quentin Tarantino was the one who had the wallet that said badass motherfucker on it. Or bad motherfucker. It, that you know feels like a Tarantino choice. Another piece of trivia about... Not to derail us from our heady discussion but uh, vincent drives tarantino's car and in the scene where there is a bunch of complaining about someone keying the car that tarantino writing into the script that the person who keyed his car should be murdered well the art uh, art does imitate life as it were but yeah you know it's really 
It's really interesting when you you delve deeper into this movie and I, I think a lot of people just watch it and say, yeah, it's it's a fantastically fun movie. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastically watchable movie that keeps you excited and engaged the whole time. But, you know, what is it trying to say? What is what is it doing? What are the the themes behind it besides just cool shit happening? Because they're there. They're not there on the surface, but they are there. Yeah, it's not... The movie isn't empty. It has yeah. a lot going on below the surface that, that you can miss, and you can walk away from it just being like, yeah, there were guns, and Uma Thurman got stabbed with a huge needle. Yeah. You know, all of that sort of thing. You can come away from it. And I think that even the like the mystery box of you know what's in this chest is intended to kind of serve that. And I think that a lot of the, you know, deep interpretations of what's in the box or whatever are silly because what do you you think is in the box? Nothing's in the box. It It does not matter. matter. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. It's not the point. The point is there's the, it's like, it's a Royale with cheese. Yeah. It's an inverse Maltese Falcon, right? Like it's the, the anti MacGuffin because we never get to know what's in the box. And the movie makes fun of us for wanting to know what's in the box at the end. When, when pumpkin sees what's in the box and honey bunny asks what it is and he doesn't respond. She's like, God damn it. What's in the box. Mm-hmm. And it's like that moment of the audience being like, we're never going to get to know what's in the box. I do love that golden glow. It gives off though. That's fun. It's so good. It's so <laughs> classic. Like that is. That's right out of like something from the forties or yeah. 50s. Old, old Hollywood. You open a treasure chest and you're glowing. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't particularly matter. And the importance is the the characters in you know the story that they go through, and even then, it's like the characters themselves aren't super important. They're interesting, they're fun, but it's it's about how we, as the audience, view them and how the film presents them. Yeah, and how they view each other. Yeah, I think that you have really unlocked something for me in thinking about the the roles that the characters are playing to each other this is like i'm definitely going to be thinking about this for longer than than just the the podcast recording i thought that we would talk a little bit about the influence of postmodernism on this movie um oh you weren't kidding about that i was not kidding about that take a big rip off of your bong because we're we're going in I think, like, I just had a couple of examples of things that I thought were interesting okay. the movie was doing. You have this, the very, like, referential style that it's doing where it's constantly bringing up TV shows, the whole sequence in Jackrabbit Slims. Like, all of these things feel like something a movie wouldn't have done in the 80s. You know, everything up to this point has been movies and TV don't want to acknowledge that movies and TV exist mm-hmm. in a way that Tarantino's like, why are we abandoning this entire lexicon of shorthand? Like I can get so much more done if you'll let me talk about this because people are going to instantly know, you know, they're going to instantly laugh at this green acres joke. I don't actually have to write some, you know, long thought out joke to go here. I can just drop this shorthand. And then I, I think that 
you know, obviously this isn't like the first example of it ever or whatever in, in film history, but the, I, I really enjoyed the moment where a character in a movie was explaining to me how TV production worked. Yeah. Yeah. About the pilot. Yes. Like this is how pilots work and, and like catching the audience up because it's a very LA movie mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. you could have a version of this that's just, they just talk about a pilot and they just move on because Jules and Vincent both live in LA. They both know how TV works and they move on. And instead they frame, you know, Vincent as a little bit of an idiot so that we get that explained to us. Yeah. There are multiple conversations about the pilot and yeah. and all that. I want, I want Tarantino to produce it. I know he's only going to make 10 movies. Oh, I was I'd, thinking the same thing. If he actually made like a Fox force five, it'd be a fun TV show. It would be a fun TV show. And you get the bad, the bad joke every episode. I, what's Uma Thurman up to? Can we can we get her to to sign that deal? <laughs> we can try. We can try. Yeah, I think I think you make a lot of good points. It's it's a really interesting movie, and that part of that's just like Tarantino and what he brought to cinema, mm-hmm. and like it's his love for you know film and that sort of. 90s style of self-referential and you see it in you know films like clerks you know where it's like this is what people were doing when they talked about film this is how they acted and you know they would just hang around and talk about this stuff and it feels very realistic all the conversations feel very i mean they feel a little hyper real because nobody's that witty and quick in real life mm-hmm. uh, but they all feel like these real conversations people have that are sometimes inane and sometimes pointless. And, you know, sometimes you just got to talk about something that maybe doesn't super make sense to an overall picture, but that's the conversation you're having. That's the thing that pops in your head at that particular moment. Yeah. The movie does a good job of kind of fighting the, the form of a movie. Jules and Vincent show up at the apartment and it's, not quite time to knock on the door. Mm. It's um, great camera work there where they walk away, but the camera stays waiting outside the door for them to come back. Yes. Um, but it's like, that's not how movies work mm. in a, in a movie. You can't waste 30 yeah. seconds with them talking about feet. Good. Well, Tarantino doesn't consider a conversation about feet. Well, that's actually time. integral to the understanding of full fiction. <laughs> but like movies would have a, a traditional movie would have, Jules and Vincent show up at that door right when they're supposed to be there. We're probably not even going to see them knock. We're going to see them kick the door in and an immediate transition to inside to the kids staring at them. But Tarantino takes his time and, and is like, no, the movie's going to go at the pace that he's setting. Yeah. Not to mention we, the resolution of that scene, we don't see for an entire movie. There's an entire movie between that scene happening and, you know, them shooting Brett, big brain Brett, and then at the end of the movie, we see, oh, there's another guy with yeah. a gun in the clo- in the bathroom. Well, and then like taking, taking Marvin away, yeah. which I had almost forgotten that that. So when I, my most recent rewatch of Pulp Fiction, other than the one that we just did, was just like a month ago. And oh. I had forgotten what was going to happen in the car. Oh, I remember. I and can't forget that. I, I don't know. Like when 
they're just talking in the car. I didn't remember. But then when John Travolta turned around and you the, see gun, the gun yeah. pointed at the camera, I was like, oh, that's what's about to happen. Yeah. But that's just such a good moment. Like, I think that a lesser actor could have played that in a, a kind of overwhelmed way. Like, oh man, I just shot Marvin in the face. And Travolta delivers it in like such a, just a tone of like almost disbelief. That's more, it just, it works on a comedic level so much better than if he was despairing. Stop it. Oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I seen some crazy ass shit in my time, but just chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. He probably he went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Believe it, man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We got to get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving a just car. Just this fucking blood. And Travolta's still doing amazing acting. Hey, I don't want to hear you speak a word against John Travolta on this podcast, okay? He's been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm a John Travolta apologist. He's the only Scientologist I'm going to defend on this show. Oh, my goodness. Not, to, not Tom Cruise? The only thing that I have to say about Tom Cruise is that it's really that that onion meme of the worst person you know when when he starts defending practical effects and doing real stunt work that's when i'm like oh man yeah, stop, stop talking sense jumps Cruise. out of planes and stuff my cousin actually did like some assistant work for uh, as tom cruise's assistant i i've heard that it's pretty great to work for tom yeah Cruise. no she He's said like it really was really nice. yeah she said it was very nice then he pulls out his e-meter and then <laughs> asks you to take a personality test yeah, yeah, I just want to talk to you about your personality. It says here you're depressed. I have a cure for that. It's just 20 bucks, kid. <laughs> That's where it starts. Oh, God. Okay. Do we want to talk about, you know, like, before we close out, this movie is so, there's so many scenes, so many iconic moments. What's your favorite moment in Pulp Fiction, your single favorite moment? Okay, so I said this in in our chat when we were talking to Seth, but the transition from the Gold Watch story with Child Butch to Butch gasping and jerking up off the table, that is my absolute favorite moment in the movie. It is just such a good transition into Butch's story. Like It is like he just got shocked with a defibrillator and just is up. Well, you know, I'd have that reaction too if somebody had just told me, that my favorite watch was in. He reacts one, like two. the watch went up his butt. Not one, but two butts. Okay. And you have to keep it forever. Oh, God. You might have to emotionally abuse your girlfriend at some point over this watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a wacky relationship. I think my favorite moment, I, I, I really do love just sort of the inane conversation between Vincent and his drug dealer and like when he shows back up at the drug dealer's place but like all their conversations are so funny because it's just like this kind of awkward casualness where he's like you know the drug his drug dealer is like hey you want to stick around and that one girl's single and he's like is she the one with all the shit in her face <laughs> and he's like no that's my wife <laughs> and he's like oh shit and it's just 
It's so silly. It's the nineties. You can't you can't upset your drug dealer. What yeah. you, how are you gonna find another one? And the just the whole conversation about him buying drugs and he's like, it's a seller's market. And it's just it's not such, Amsterdam. It's, yeah. Yeah, it it's like it definitely feels a lot like Vincent's a character that went to Europe once and is like obsessed with it now. It's his whole personality. Yeah. It's kind of like how I've come back from Europe each time and I'm like, oh, I hate being here. Yeah. Can't walk anywhere. What is this country? Where's my baguette? The bread doesn't even taste good here. But yeah, that 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 whole thing and then obviously when he goes back, it's just like there's so much ineptitude yeah. in everybody and it's just so funny. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when Vincent is going back and he he calls Lance on the phone and he says, I'm in big fucking trouble and I'm coming to your house. <laughs> yeah, don't fucking come here. <laughs> Take her to a hospital. Yeah. And then he just hangs up and it, the, the, it's like, are you talking on a cellular phone? Oh, this is a prank call, prank call. <laughs> I don't know you. Um, okay, so a thing I think we should do on the podcast is give the movie poster a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Is it going on your dorm room wall? Oh, well, I mean, come on. This is come this on. is the the classic, the only thing, the only decoration some 19-year-old dirtbag guy is putting up on his dorm room wall is just this poster. It is so good. There's so many. I mean, yeah, this poster is fantastic. It looks like a dime store novel. I mean, it, it even, yeah, the poster's like kind of weathered to look like a, it was a book, you know? Thurman, can't say no to that. The cigarette. The cigarette. And then, you know, you have all the variations of like Jules and Vincent hold, in their suits holding the gun. Such an yes. iconic image. You put Darth Vader's head on it. Yeah. I immediately, when I picture that, I picture it in black and white. Yeah. And then I picture the like Darth Vader and Boba yeah. Fett I mean, version. it's just... Such iconic imagery, and clearly this, I guess another thing I'd like to talk about yeah. is does this deserve its place in film bro canon? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to watch a lot of things that kind of suck. That's what I'm or, thinking. That's why I think we should discuss, does, does it deserve its spot? I mean, this is a five-star movie on Letterboxd for me. Five, yeah. bar and, five stars and a heart. Yeah. I think that there are, you know, Conversations to be had by two film bros who aren't us about Tarantino's liberal use of the N-word and his scripts that that feels questionable. But, you know, aside from that, this movie is just as good today as it was in 94. Yeah, it's it's exciting. And I it's, know 1994. I was born that year. Oh, yeah, you know very well. It's exciting. It's fun. It's intensely watchable. It's a movie that you will go back and visit because every time you see it, you just enjoy all those moments again. Yeah. And it's a movie that has substance. There's, there's stuff there that, I mean, you might not see it on a, you might not get it on a first view, but it's there. And it has like things to say, which is always very important to me for a movie. It's, you know, Tarantino, I think sometimes gets a rap of being all style, no substance. I think it's just that his style is so intense and over the top that the substance seems subdued by comparison. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if you're scandalized by the hyperviolence, then you aren't going to be able to see the substance. You're just going to 
call the movie revolting. What I will say is that this is a, an anecdote about Reservoir Dogs, but when Miramax was, they had already bought the movie, they were screening it for some people, and Bob and Harvey Weinstein's wives were in the screening, and they left. And they were talking about, like, we have to cut the ear scene, we have to cut the ear scene, like, no one's going to want to see that. And then the wives come back into the theater, and when they asked them after, they were like, well, we wanted to see how it ended. And they were like, don't touch it. Leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Do whatever you want. But yeah, I've been reading a, a book that I will link in the show notes about this sort of indie era of film. It kind of parallels the, the rise of Sundance and the rise of Miramax. And it's all, it's written from a like pre Me Too perspective. Mm-hmm. But I will say that like, Harvey Weinstein manages to come across as just a hellacious monster even before the all of the sexual crimes. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating read. The inspiration for Job of the Hut. Little, you know uh, it. Not many people know that. <laughs> George Lucas was walking around Queens one day and he said, that kid, look at him. Okay, so we got to do our, our kind of wrap up here. Okay. That is, what have you been watching? What have I been watching? I've been watching a lot of Gundam. Yeah? Yeah, so I've been watching. I recently finished watching, well, I started this whole journey into Gundam, which if you know anything about Gundam, it's over 40, 50 years or something at this point of of anime from the very original one. It's mech anime, and it's been a fun journey. It's... It's intense. It's exciting. The characters are fun. There's a lot of wonkiness and wackiness to it, which I always appreciate. But uh, yeah, I've been like going along with the series. And now I'm going to go back. I originally watched, they recut the original series as a, as three different movies. And now I want to go back and rewatch the original series, which when you get to the animation of the time period, it's very silly. What's the last thing you saw in theaters? Oh, the last thing I saw in theaters? I haven't gone to movie theaters very often. I guess it was Evil Dead Rise. Okay. With with you. Yeah. Yeah, we went to see that. Which was, that was a lot of fun. I, Evil Dead Rise was a really enjoyable movie for me. It definitely felt a little bit like somebody, it felt like fan fiction a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, Evil Dead fan fiction. But I I thought that was fine because I, I enjoy Evil Dead. I think um, I'm a big fan of the original movies, obviously. I think that the 2013 remake was really interesting because it felt very specifically like a director's vision and his interpretation of Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas this more felt like, you know, a director coming in and doing a lot of the Sam Raimi impersonation, but it was still very enjoyable. Yeah. I didn't feel like the. You know, the parts of the the earlier Evil Dead movies that I enjoy is like the zanier it mm. gets. Like Army of Darkness was definitely my favorite when we yeah. watched all of them. And I don't feel like this had the same level of comedy. No. As, it, as it has more than 2013. That's what I've heard. I have not 2013 seen 2013 was not, it's nothing, no zaniness. Yeah. It's and just straight. You can't have Evil Dead without... No, but it was it was a fun, fresh take, and it was in, it stood on its own as a pretty good movie. Yeah, well, so I just to give you like one thing that I watched that's not in theaters anymore. I saw Golden Arm, 
recently, which is a... Is it an arm wrestling movie? It is an arm wrestling movie. Like over the top? It is It is over the top, but women and a road trip movie. Sign me up. It's. It was so fun. I enjoyed it just a ton. It it here actually I like wrote. Yeah, it's a it's like a play on an underground fighting movie that picks up a Hallmark original character. Oh, that's fun. It makes her the main character and takes you for a joyous ride through the world of competitive arm wrestling. Nice. Yeah, I gave it 4 stars. It's very very indie, Is a it bunch of in old, theaters or streaming. Streaming. It came out in 2020. Okay. Yeah, I think I heard about that on the Bechtel cast. Okay, nice. Uh, they had the writer or director on awesome. uh, an episode. And then I watched Thelma and Louise oh, yeah, um, the yeah. other night, which was a lot of fun. Uh, if you like Thelma and Louise, you should also check out Desert Hearts. Oh, okay. I'll add that to the, the old watch list. It's a, a very enjoyable kind of women coming together movie, and, you know, set in a very desolate place. Yeah, it, I, I highly recommend it. There's no real crime in it, but it's like a very good, these women from very different backgrounds come together and have a, a rendezvous. Well, I am a fan of road trip movies. Mm. So, Okay, and then we have one last thing to do here. Oh my goodness. You're looking at the, the runtime. Don't worry, it's going to be edited. I'm going to cut out everything you said so that I sound smarter. It's just it's just Cody talking. I'm, I'm going to re-record things you said so that I can sound smarter. Okay, so the next thing that we need to do, you need to pull up Letterboxd on your phone. Okay, hold on. Are we reading reviews on Letterboxd? No, my plan oh. was that we would do the what I've been calling the Letterboxd jukebox. Okay. So you pull up your watch list. Okay. And then there... You can, if you want, you can filter by streaming so that you don't have to go hunt something down. My watch list is all terrible shit. <laughs> You're going to have a great week. Oh, goodness. Uh, so then what you do is you can sort by, and there is a shuffle option. Ooh. And whatever comes up at the top, you watch in the next week and, and then let us know how it went on the next Ooh, episode. Oh, I got a good one. What do you got? I got Wizards by Ralph Bakshi. Ooh, you've told me about this. Yeah. Yeah, read us a little bit of the description so that people know uh, what you're in for. So Ralph Bakshi, for those don't, who don't know, is a animator. He did the the original animated Lord of the Rings movie. He's, he's kind of notorious because all of his projects end up failing horribly for the most part. <laughs> he did Cool World. He did Fire and Ice. A lot of these, like, just big vision movies that fail and wizards is one of those. Okay. So wizards is an epic fantasy of peace and magic. After the death of his mother, the evil mutant wizard black wolf discovers some long lost military technologies full of ego and ambition. Black wolf claims his mother's throne assembles an army and sets out to brainwash and conquer earth. Meanwhile, black wolf's gentle twin brother, the bearded sage avatar calls upon his own magical abilities to foil Black Wolf's plans for world domination, even if it means destroying his own flesh and blood. I mean, that sounds pretty fun. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be very enjoyable. It's it's pretty much, like, I think some of the wizards are Nazis. I think it's Nazi <laughs> wizards. So it's the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon? That's a, I like the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. It's fun. 
Okay, so I shuffled and I got a little bit more of a classic. This is a, a big blind spot for me and I didn't get to it when I did Noir Vember last November. So it's still on my list. I pulled 1949's The Third Man. Ooh, nice. So the tagline for this movie is hilarious. It's definitely a 1949 tagline on a movie poster. Hunted by men, sought by women. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> this I, is a poster I'd hang in my dorm room. Oh, I have seen, where have I seen that poster? I don't know. I've absolutely seen the poster for Wizards. So interestingly, Carol Reed, the director of The Third Man, also directed a movie we saw together in France, Our Man in Havana. Oh yeah, that's a great movie. Our Man in Havana was fantastic. It was so fun. A Almost a like a satire of a spy movie. Yeah. Not almost, it was. It's starring Alec Guinness, and if you've never seen Alec Guinness in anything other than Star Wars, where he's Ben Kenobi, he is an, an immensely talented actor, which is kind of why he hates being only known for Ben Kenobi, because he's been in a million other things, and he's- Shakespearean uh, Yeah, he is amazing, yeah. Yeah, so I'm super excited to watch The, the Third Man. It's. I know that it was like several people recommended it to me when I was doing November last year. So I will enjoy that. Very nice. All right. Well, I think that that is it for our very first episode, man. We did it. We did. All right. Well, we will see you guys next week. Hey, if you're listening to this and you listened all the way to this point, please leave us a rating and a review. You're probably a friend that we have in real life. Um, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us five stars. And you know, one of us will buy you a drink for doing that. And if not, we'll know who you are. Yeah, we'll know you didn't do it. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Well, oh, let's tell them what we're going to do next week so that they can watch it. So we're going to be doing a B-movie that Tarantino said inspired the, the trilogy structure of Pulp Fiction. We're going to be watching 1963's Black Sabbath, which interestingly enough is also where the band got their name. Whoa. Whoa, that's so cool. Tune in, metalheads. Rock on. <laughs>